Volkswagen. Damn. Oh, yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. That bad, bad Volkswagen. <laughs> I guess that's it's really all, awful. That's all I have to say right now. I mean, what, you know, it's, uh, it seems, phew, I mean. It raises really important questions about, and James Groman, we should put this in the show notes. He did a piece, I think it was at Slate. I mean, this is a problem as, as more and more devices and more and more things we interact with have software and can therefore be programmed to do things we're not aware of well to present to, different yeah. faces to the world to, of course and the complications for things like environmental enforcement this is actually not a small problem. You, remember, you remember back when you talked to ryan Kalo about um and we talked a little bit uh with frank uh, pasquale about this too but um but Ryan is the one where we talk most about robotics law and yeah. the difference between a human being using an instrumentality to achieve a certain objective right. and then how robotics, especially autonomous robotics, like driverless cars, which, which don't do exactly the steps that you tell them, in a, but you program in a goal and they achieve that goal, right? Uh, or even maybe something looser with respect to some kinds of software, right? You very vague goals and they achieve it so so with these you know it's not just human beings acting at a distance through remote control i think the way that we talked about in that show was acting at a causal distance Mm -hmm. right there's some the the things that the that the autonomous system will do are in themselves maybe even unpredictable you know hard to predict in advance because they depend on input and in chaotic ways um uh, but they, you can't say it's not the result of human programming. It's just, the, you know, because of the nature of programming, now we have, we've created things in the world which are not, um, the steps of which are not all the volitional products of human beings, right? And and so, but this this case with Volkswagen seems to me not so hard because the goal was was criminal. Oh, right. The, the, the goal of creating this defeat device that prevents environmental monitoring from successfully identifying the way the car operates in normal use right it detects whether it's on a test uh, whether it's on one of these testing things i don't know how it does this right and then and if i'm on a the, testing rig and I'm then gonna, changes the emissions profile right yeah uh and and that right so creating it to be able to do that is uh there's nothing even remotely accidental about it this was right. all intended uh, had to have been so yeah that's a that's a different set of issues yeah Oh, there'll be more to talk about with this, but and but the it, public policy implications of trying to create systems that you can implement, create monitoring systems that allow you to achieve goals that you've articulated as a matter of policy. Um, I mean, that's that's we need to be able to do that. There will be, I have no doubt, there will be howls of protest from people who want to use copyright and trade secret to protect the software that they create to put in their devices, and that's the. We're going to have to reach a new understanding of the way those things are done hmm. because it's not going to, we can't simply say, well, you're right. I mean, we'll just have to let you conceal all the possibilities that you might be using to thwart our ability to make sure public policy goals are reached. That's not tenable. We, we likely will get to the point, though, that even if you require people to demonstrate it, or to disclose to a regulator or maybe even to the public the source code, uh, that that's... Still, the the uh, the AI in there may be complicated enough where it, you know the the machine may do things which are criminal that no one intended, and then what do you you know? And that's, that's true with, too. With Ryan, we talked about like strict liability. Right. And, no, it's going to present those issues as well. For sure. um, relatedly, um, in that it involves tech, <laughs> we're going to be uh, at the Tech Law Institute. We are um, speaking, and we're going to do a live episode. In is it three weeks away? What's it? Well, what? we're going to do. We're not going to do a live episode. We're going to do a live audience episode. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. So the listeners won't be able to 
contact us in real time as we are doing a recording that not they for the year not not for this one yeah uh, uh, but we will be appearing in atlanta um, at the tech law institute um, we'll put the details in the show notes so if you if you're an attorney and you want continuing legal education credit in georgia yeah. um, and i i don't know if you can get credit elsewhere for attending this maybe you can maybe you can't but yeah, I don't uh, know how that works but, but we'll be there it's friday october what's the date 23rd i think uh, 23rd and it's got it looks like a great program yeah. and we're going to be talking we think about um uh the latest um blow up in the 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 app slash design slash website slash advertising world uh, mm. about content blocking and um, the war between consumers, uh, content producers and advertisers that's yeah. that's happening and uh, looks fascinating. So the example, you know, um, in iOS nine, they just came out with content blockers for mobile Safari. Marco Arment wrote Peace, which is one of these content blockers, then pulled it from the store. And there's this whole, you know, there's an agonizing discussion going on about that. And we're going <laughs> right. to, we'll talk about that from our particular perspective. And we'll be taking questions from the audience. And, 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 and I think also talking with Paul Arn, who's one of the directors of that program there about this. So it could be very, very interesting. Um, you're all invited. Unless it's too late to sign up, in which case you'll have to wait for the show <laughs> to come out. But if it's not too late... Um, you're not invited if you're not a member of the Georgia State Bar, are you? I, I have no idea. All we can do is send people... We're going to post the uh, website on, in the show notes. Show notes are right there in your podcast app yeah. or on our website. So you can look at the rules that apply and the dates yeah. that apply. And Yeah, you can go to... We, we can't countermand any of that. We're no. not give, telling people that we have the power or authority to allow people in who don't yeah. Yeah. I, I, which, don't, I don't think so. I'm not going to say you're all invited could be misconstrued. I'm not going to suggest some kind of civil disobedience. People kind of show up and they chain themselves to the columns there and stuff. I'm not going to suggest people do that. Um, I, I might do that. Good. Uh, but, you know, I'm not suggesting others do. OK. Uh, OK. So th- so there's that. And I, that's going to be super fun. It's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. We had fun at that conference last year. We did not record a podcast episode, but we. We presented a panel two, and, two parallel paper yeah, things. And yeah, was, and it was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a good time. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's that. And I think we're going to do... So we got we got a good batch of feedback this week. Boy, it was some good feedback. A lot of feedback. Uh, we are going to get to that. We're not going to get to it all on this show, though. So if you don't hear us responding to your feedback... We'll be doing week, it soon. We will be doing it soon. It's just that uh, we had a fantastic guest this week, uh, Al Brophy, and the conversation. I don't, I don't want this to be a two-hour show. Um, but I also don't want to cut a single minute of our discussion with Al Brophy, right. which is fantastic. I mean, yep. he's, he's so great. Uh, so we're going to do a little bit of feedback today um, and then and then more later. And the feedback today that we have is, uh, is it, well, let me, let me, let's, let's have an appetizer. Okay. You want to do an appetizer? Sure. This is something that actually that came in before the last show, but I, I realized we didn't, uh, we, didn't, um, we didn't do it on our last feedback show. I don't think we did, right? This is from listener Spencer. Okay. You know listener Spencer. Yeah. What? Yeah. Okay. Um, who, um, this was on the, um, uh, on the show, uh, with Amanda Frost about, uh, about internet research by judges. In fact, both pieces of feedback we're going to do today deal with that, right? Listener Spencer says, in the case of Justice Posner, I am supportive of a benign dictator. He will do for the American justice system what Augustus did for Rome. Everyone else has to use judicial notice. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Basically, so he's saying like, you know, he, he, he believes in the, in the, in the dangers of internet research by judges and that this could get out of control in some of the ways that Amanda mentioned on that show, right? right. That if you allow judges to kind of hear evidence and, and deal with cases, whether on appeal or in the trial court, and then go into chambers and start, you know, Googling on their own to try to figure out what the truth is, 
that opens up a lot of dangers, some of which we'll talk about in a second, some of which we talked, many, all of which we talked about on that show yeah. last time. Right. And, and, and so Spencer makes the, uh, it's not snarky exactly, but the, the comment that, look, Posner's super smart. I trust this guy. He can be the benign dictator. Everyone else, you know, everyone else has to follow the rules. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was, I thought that was funny and interesting. I don't think we mentioned it last time. Right. Um, okay. Uh, we have a lot more, but we're going to deal with, um, one email we got from, yeah, I'll call him one time listener, Chad, <laughs> maybe former, <laughs> former listener, Chad. This is, and I love this email because it is, uh, first it's super critical. Um, and chast- of, us. of us chastises us, uh, not of our guest. I think he he thought our as I do he thought this is again about our Amanda Frost episode but, yeah. but thought that uh, no it's she, quite she clear he thought points. that was the only good thing about the episode <laughs> and that and that it if only we had gotten uh, if only we had been less obstructing of her great uh, points and her wisdom it would yeah. have been a better episode and I'm going to um, I think the best way we can read this opening paragraph if we want to but yeah. I think the most important thing is to is to think about you know what if what is it about his criticism that that you know, what is his real criticism? Because I think if you just read it, it looks a little bit polemical and it, it loses some of its of its punch. But I, I do want to get a sense of what its real critical bite is. So let me just to give you a flavor. Uh, you know, he opens up saying episodes. Oh, you're going to you're going to read the first paragraph. I'm going to read the first. Do you want to? I want to read the first paragraph. Come on. Should, should we read I, it the same time in harmony? No, Let's sing it in harmony. No, 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 no. Because the reason I'm reading it is because the last paragraph says that I have licensed this tone okay i'll read the last paragraph so you can read the first he says sorry for the hostile email and and it believe me it was a hostile email (laughs) (laughs) but since joe has decided that it's okay to start uh pissing on the listeners by calling us quote inane we're gonna start pissing back when you guys honk your jobs now i will say um that that uh i i did not and would not call a listener inane i i did call adam's idea inane um or bonkers or uh, all kinds of other and, and again this is now the third time we're talking about it right. and i thought listener adam's suggestion was very interesting right. and not at all in but i even recall saying at the time of course i'm not saying that of adam because adam is great yes you did say that uh, i'm i'm saying this of his idea yeah right maybe that didn't come across well enough that you know we have well, a song but so Adam's i'm underscoring it again this. right fact, i actually drinking, didn't do that you're so. drinking out of a coffee mug sent to us by listener adam yeah yeah long time listener and and I think he gets the. This is the fantastic Zabar gets, mug. I, and as I mentioned last time, I think he gets the the. I don't know if it's the shtick of the of the show, but he should feel honored to uh, be called to have his ideas called inane, just like mine are by you on a routine basis. Right. So now that, that that deepens the relationship between Adam and me. I think so, yes. Okay, so go ahead. But so far, um, you know, if if we're scoring this, um, uh, uh, on this paragraph, so far we're we're at the score is still zero. Right. Because um, this isn't true. Um, <laughs> I didn't do that. I didn't do what he yeah, said. Yeah. Um, All right. First, first paragraph. And it's great. It made me laugh. And in fact, when that, when I read it, the first thing I thought is, oh, that's something I would say. Because <laughs> right? it's got, it's got the real, Let's hear it. it's yeah, got a real it. style Unlo- to un- it. Unleash it. Um, episode 74 of the Oral Argument podcast was a garbage locomotive careening off the tracks into a lake of molten failure. <laughs> <laughs> How in the world did it take you two morons 80 minutes to navigate between four salient well-made points? Question mark. And then he lays out some of the points. Yeah. And, and he, you know, and, and so he kind of goes through and kind of outlines what he thought were the salient points of the show. 
and wonders, you know, how we managed. He says that the amount of time you managed to kill with nonsense between these points was utterly baffling, which makes me think maybe he's not a regular, regular listener to the show. Because <laughs> uh, there's that uh, listener Chad nonsense is what we specialize in uh, and 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 enjoy. Uh, but I have a more serious take on that in a second. Uh, and he says, you know, Christian, why did you? I think most of this is critical of me. Okay. Uh, and 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 we'll t- why did you make Amanda repeat her point three times? Three times before engaging it. This is, I think, the point he's referring to is um, that if we don't have limits on this sort of thing, that all kinds of bad things will happen. You know, judges will rely on shoddy internet research. Sure. There will be um, uh, litigants won't have a chance to respond. I mean, all the, I'll just say it. All of what I think are the obvious points. Um, that that anybody would think of when you say, what's the problem with the judge going behind chambers and right. Googling stuff that's relevant to the case? And um, po- points which Judge Hamilton, in his dissent, raised right. versions of. Yeah. So so uh, agreed, these are the things you would, of course, want to, to cope with. And then he said, then when she slapped you around with a contrapositive, you know, okay, what are the limits on uh, research? Uh, she said, I duck it and give a nonsensical answer. You don't know? Geez, thanks, Cardozo. Don't hurt yourself there, champ. <laughs> that made me laugh, too. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. I mean, because I did, I think, you know, she said, okay, and she turned it back to me and says, yeah. what should the limits be? And I'm like, oh, you know, I, I don't know because, um, but I didn't know in a particular way. We can talk more about this, you know, in, in a second if you want to. Um, and, and what the ultimate kind of criticism here. And he says, you know, basically – what did you want to talk about instead of these topics? And why did it take so long? He says, what time prisoners get to eat? And he says, are you kidding me? But with an expletive thrown in, <laughs> uh, if I may quote, quote Han Solo, great job, guys, always thinking with your stomach. Um, and he talks about how we make, you know, nice salaries. And you may not know this, but at low wage law abiding taxpayer citizens have to uh, uh, absorb all manners of indignities all the time surrounding timing of meals and risk to health. And, and they haven't committed any crimes. And so he says, as long as prisoners get fed by the prison, they can eat at whatever time is financially and logistically convenient. And it doesn't rise even close to something requiring judicial intervention. Uh, it's kind of insulting to the rest of us working straight jobs and not committing crimes that Christian wants to spend more taxpayer money on this BS. It's prison. It's not meant to be fun. Timing doesn't matter. These guys don't have someplace else to be. He's referring there to uh, what Posner kind of highlighted in the opinion is odd, but didn't you know, it wasn't part of the case. So we didn't take it up more. And we highlighted as something interesting, which is that, uh, and and in our show with Josh Lee as well, prisoners are fed in this particular case at 4 a.m. and 4 p.m., two meals a day, 4 a.m. and 4 p.m. And part of it was like, you know, how would you look at that as a judge? You know, uh, people say it's cruel. And if people said that was cruel and unusual, you know, what would you do? Um, I don't know. How do you think about this email overall, Joe? I mean, well, I I think this show isn't for everybody. And I think if you are listening to it and it strikes you as a waste of time and inane i wouldn't i if i were you i wouldn't listen to it or or put maybe slightly differently i would listen to a few different episodes of the show and see if it's for you there are podcasts i've tried that i stopped listening to because it wasn't uh, it 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 was either frustrating or not informative or just not fun and so if if the if the way that we think about things and the way we think through things by talking about things isn't something that gives you some some fun and some joy and some reflection and i i would i would really say please don't listen because that's not what we want we don't want right. it to be frustrating <laughs> don't, don't, we don't want yeah. you to be have a negative time we're not trying to make your life worse we're we're trying to do we're trying we share things that we think are fun and interesting and we hope other people will think so too so if you don't um then then please don't listen to it 
because because we don't want you to suffer. Yeah, but the, <laughs> we the, really the, don't. The criticism is important though because it is. There, there's a distinction between two. So first of all, this show may is shouldn't be for everybody. It's but not you, for right, everybody. You, you right? asked yeah. me what I thought. That's yeah, one yeah. thing I thought. Yeah, and and. and and it may just be that the, our style, the kinds of things that interest us, the amount of time it takes, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, we're not smart enough for you in the sense that, you know, it takes us too long to get to a point and you would rather listen to something else. And there, goodness knows, there, there are more and more great legal podcasts to listen to these days yeah, that I think are true. great, even if you do listen to our show and, and, and like it, you know, that, that are very different in style. Um, a couple, you know, uh, uh, Rick Hassan out of Irvine has one on election law now, oh, which neat. is great. Uh, and Irvine started just a general faculty podcast yeah. there that also seems great. Very different in format than our mm-hmm. show, but mm-hmm. I think, um, but but interesting and, yeah. and good. Um, so so it may be that, and we've said from the beginning, we, the show is we want to make a show that maybe even just a few people absolutely love, um, even if a lot of people don't like it. I mean, it's not for everybody. So. Uh, that that's kind of what we want to do. So there's one criticism of the show that we're just that isn't going to mean a lot to us, and that's you should be making a different show, right? Which does a different thing. And fine, uh, you know, if everybody thinks that way, and so we get no listeners to the show, then well, maybe we'll stop making the show, right? So maybe that would be the response. Sure. Um, but we're you know not going to change. We don't want to make it. We don't want to make a different kind of show. The other kind of criticism is I get what you're trying to do, and um, but you're failing to do it right. And that's the criticism that I want to take a lot more seriously. Right. And, and look, I agree with uh, Chad in, in the sense that not every episode we've done, I think, um, hits it, hits the mark of what we're trying to do. There Agreed. are some that Even I on think, our own terms. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's some right. that work better than others. True. Um, uh, some that I think have, uh, you know, not worked well at all. And I kind of kick my, I, I almost, you know, not even almost, I never blame the guests for this because, um, you know, I'm sitting here with headphones on trying to, um, you know, look and make sure that levels look good and that the recording hasn't stopped and doing kind of the engineering stuff. And at the same time, trying to follow the conversation and think about a few different things at the same time, right? Like what is really going on here? You know, I'm usually trying to figure out like, what are the things which if you understood them would make everything else kind of easy to understand or make you see it in a different light. Right. And that's, so it's kind of mentally taxing to kind of divide my attention between these things. And, but also what, what will help make the guest point best? Are we going to, I don't want to derail the guest. I want to make sure that I'm actively listening. This is so all I'm saying is that, you know, I'm not saying this is a particularly hard job. Um, but that I, I, I personally fail sometimes to do it well. Sure. You know, you're just not going to. And so I listen back to something and say, oh, you know, I shouldn't have derailed it at this point or I should have uh, guided it this way or not guided this. You know, I don't always do a good job. It just happens. And so um, I, I don't mind at all getting criticism saying, hey, you could have done a better job. Hey, gang, this is post-show Christian uh, jumping in just to say that we discussed this email a little bit more. Um, but we're kind of pressed for time today. We had a really great discussion with Al Brophy that you'll hear in just one second. So we're going to hold further discussion of this email uh, until a later show. And uh, that also gives you guys a chance to chime in on this issue about what kind of show you'd like it to be and and whether we do an okay job uh, with what we're trying to do. Um, so without further ado, we're going to get on with the show and hold more discussion until later. Al Brophy, welcome. Glad to be with you all. I, you know, we've been so excited to, about getting you on the show. It's so true. And you guys are funny. You were I'm the, a, I, seriously. I'm, the, I'm a little worried that I might, I'm, I might not say very much or say very much that's smart because I'm so nervous <laughs> about on. you about your awesomeness. Yeah, Come on. I, I'm not kidding. Yeah, he's, he's really not kidding. Because, <laughs> um, right. This yeah. is what we're going to talk about today, and I don't know how. Um, 
uh, I, I don't know how you know broad we're going to get from the core of what what the specific thing that we're going to talk about, but uh, we've been trying to think about the right way to do this for for a long time. Um, as with a number of topics that we've kind of held our powder dry until we could figure out you know uh, the right way. And and this presents, I think, a, a, you know, a really great opportunity. It goes back to well, it doesn't go back. It goes back before this. But uh, we did a show not too long ago about uh, policing with Seth Stoughton uh, mm. from South Carolina, which was really great. I don't it know if you're familiar really with Seth's stuff, but um, if you're not and or listeners are not, you should definitely listen to that episode and, and read his stuff because it's great. One of the bits of feedback we got from a listener was uh, you guys didn't talk about race very much. And I think it was that show, wasn't it, Joe? That, uh, yeah. Listener Jay's feedback, and and he's absolutely right. And there was a reason for that because you don't want to do this stuff halfway. And when I read your stuff, uh, Al, I'm always it reminds me of what it was like as a first year law student taking con law, uh, suddenly realizing that my understanding of American history, even as someone who is not under the illusion that you know the Civil War wasn't only about slavery, et cetera, et cetera. I was, you know, I, I understood that much of it. But, uh, you know, I, maybe it was reading, um, we did another episode with this, maybe it was reading The Descent in Plessy, yeah. which, which kind of just put an exclamation point on the fact, oh my God, this whole thing is about slavery, race, and Jim Crow. Like, it's all about that. And that, that was, a, you know, for me, a stunning moment. And when I read your stuff, I'm just, it constantly reminds me how impoverished my understanding of American history is, and therefore so much of our law. Um, mm. it, so that's why, you know, this is, this is one of the reasons I'm a bit starstruck is just because of how much, uh, and, and you have a case book on, on, uh, on race and, uh, and property law too, right, Al? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thanks for um, um, saying all of that. Um, I, I mean, I, I, it's always, um, surprising to me how salient race is in, um, American legal history, right? And it's, I'm, so I'm a person who studies this sort of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's what I go looking for. Um, but it's, uh, so central, um, to the, the run up to the civil war, right? Slavery, um, the use of enslaved labor. Uh, the way in which that was so central to economic development, you, you know, more in the South than the North, but but certainly in the North as well. And then, uh, you know, we've been sort of, as we unwind um, that legacy of slavery and go through decades of, uh, after a brief period of reconstruction, you know, go through decades of the Jim Crow segregation um, that continued in a lot of ways, uh, pretty much up through you know, my early lifetime in terms, you know, it's only 1964, which is right before I was born, mm -hmm. that that formal segregation was largely outlawed. We've got the Fair Housing, you know, Fair Housing Act of 1968. And then we've got the, the sort of continuing the overhang, the legacy of that. And that's what I think is cool about legal history is that, you know, you we're looking at um, the um, what happened in the past, and then a lot of the scholarship unfolds that into sort of what's going on today. Uh, and I think that's a neat, um, particularly applied part of of historical scholarship. And I think it can be, you know, useful in um, understanding contemporary, particularly contemporary law. Yeah, but that's not, of course. I think yes, and and 
I th- I think it's almost unfair though to uh to the the kind of work that you do and to to say okay you know the only as, as many people do reflexively with history is like okay well this is important if there's a lesson to be learned for today right and of course that's yeah. not it you know when I read this Nat Turner article that we're going to talk about it just it transports it makes me think more deeply about just how alien and weird and violent and 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 the the 1830s period was this yeah. this period from that to 1860 you know that's 1865 the civil war that's a 35 year period you go back we're basically looking at uh 1980 from today right yeah it, it's amazing um as i've gotten older to see sort of a whole life cycle right um i can see right. you know had parents pass away i've had friends who've had children right i mean i've seen the whole i can it, at the age i am now i can see pretty much the whole life cycle um and it's amazing you know i remember the bicentennial in 1976 and so you know think about that 1776 to you know 1815 so just after the the war of 1812 you know it's it, i i can see how within one person's lifetime you can have an extraordinary amount of change and then and then of course we've seen an extraordinary amount of change within our lifetime right i mean when i, when I was in college the idea of gay marriage but would have been laughed at had anybody had the temerity to suggest it. And even in the nineties, it was in the nineties, right? I mean, yeah. George, George Bush, ran, you know, um, ran, you know, rode the opposition to gay marriage in Ohio to reelection in two thousand four. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it, 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 so that's so. I mean, there are many. There, I, I agree with you. There's lots of reasons to study history independent of its contemporary relevance. Uh, but I think a lot of what we study about history is inspired by contemporary questions, right? We're struggling so much with race now, um, issues of um, uh, gender, uh, sexuality, sexual orientation. And that, I think, inspires people to go back and sort of see, you know, how these issues appeared in the past. But part of it is, you know, I think historians are interested in um, what it is that they can study. You know, so there was a time when people didn't think uh, race was, it was possible to study, you know, workers or women or issues of race. And it's almost like a, a, a detective um, process of like, what is it that we can go back and look at these old texts and see, um, uh, you know, issues that we didn't know we could study through them. I, I was just teaching um, Robert Covers Justice Accused yesterday, which is a phenomenal book about anti-slavery judges who were issued pro-slavery decisions. Yeah, yeah, I saw I saw this cited in your in the Nat Turner article that we're going to talk yeah. about and I was like immediately Robert Cover he's all, we talked about his writing on the show before and I immediately yeah. said, "Yes, I, I'm immediately going to go out and get that book and read it." Uh, it for this it, reason. It's a phenomenal book. I think it may be um the best work I've ever read in in American legal history. If if, if there's a better book, I, I I don't know it. And he was inspired because to 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 sort of study these anti-slavery judges because he was interested in judges during the Vietnam War who were sentencing, you know, draft resistors to jail. And it's sort of like, why are you doing this? This is, you know, immoral. And so, be, you know, that was what inspired him to go back and, and search for other people who wrestled with the, you know, to what extent, even though my own moral compass points in another direction, am I bound by, um, by law? And, um, and to, and to, yeah, go, well, go ahead, Al. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's a great meditation. I, I love the book. Um, and every time I, I reread it, I, I like it even more. It's just so, so rich. But, and he was, 
you know, he he's, I think, the person who first opened our eyes to the fact that Melville's novella, Billy Budd, is really a meditation about the rule of law. Before cover, people were talking about, you know, other aspects of uh, more literary aspects of of Melville. And then, you know, cover is able to to show us why um, that um, novella, though it's set in the context of a ship in the British uh, Navy during um, the Napoleonic Wars, it really has a lot to say about the, you know, fugitive slaves um, being returned um, home uh, or back to the South um, and the, the, the conflict that the judges who are doing this have. So, so it's a great thing. I mean, there's just so much you can study through history. I mean, obviously the, you know, recent um, explosion in intellectual property as, as a, as a, you know, really exciting and phenomenal field has, has inspired people to go back and look at, you know, IP um, in the, the 19th and early 20th centuries. I mean, there's just so many things, anything we can study today, we can study, you know, historically. And I think we're increasingly interested in those so things. So wh- why was there a thought that people couldn't study it? Was there just a, a, a not yet an appreciation for the raw materials that were available? Yeah, it's, it's a gr- that's a great question. So, you know, I think until the 1970s, legal history was largely sort of seen as an intellectual backwater, antiquarian, you know, people would get together and, um, and I still, you still see some of this, right? You know, so every once in a while I'll go to, you know, sort of a local, um, uh, you know, history meeting or something and people will be talking about portraits of judges and sort of, you know, we want to do this sort of genealogy of, 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 um, who people are without a sense of sort of what's going on in their minds. Um, but, and I, you know, and that may be partly, you know, it was like a product of the 1950s law school, which was, you know, sort of very focused on narrow points. And then as sort of history as a discipline opened up in, you know, legal history then followed suit um, and began to ask questions about, you know, women, workers, uh, people of African descent, immigrants, rather than just focusing on, you know, the, the, the great white judges or something like that. Let, mm. Let's do this in the specific example to, before we get to the Nat Turner rebellion of the state versus man case, uh, which, which I use in, I've used it in, in legislation, regulation, and in property for, for different purposes. So if we could talk more specifically about it, and in particular... Which is not about an anti-slavery judge. It's no, about a very pro-slavery judge. Right, but, but in particular... <laughs> to like, be clear. To, to build yeah. on the idea that you just had about about the uses of history and kind of the, the, the more kind of, uh, um, um, I don't know, state or, or less interesting versions. Like, you know, I think one of the key things that people need to do in, in understanding law is is to foster an ability to have a kind of intellectual empathy for the thoughts of others. Cause that's, that's the only way of making the, of really making the law sing to leap off the page and understand. And part of that, you know, in the, and, and the other thing that I think I've said on this show before is like, I really do think that, that traveling to the most far flung of countries today, uh, some, you know, whether it's Burma or, or somewhere else, uh, I think you would have less culture shock than if you were transported to our country in the 1830s. Uh, where I think it would just be an overwhelming, the accents would be different. 
the, the writing is different. Of course, the technology is different, but also just the attitudes are just so, uh, so, so let's, let's do that with state versus man and just think about like, you know, or, or you take it where you want, but what I'm particularly interested in, in, in understanding that case, not as a bit of law, but as what that judge is thinking in the context of this crazy culture. I mean, yeah. So state v. man is such a rich case, right? So let me just, just for your listeners back up for just a second. So it's this, it's this case decided, I think in 1830-ish um, by this man, Thomas Ruffin, who had just gone on the North Carolina Supreme Court. This was maybe, I don't know, the fifth or so opinion he'd written when he went on the court. And it was an appeal from a you know trial court decision that had convicted a person who had rented a slave and he abused her and she ran away. So he took a gun and shot her. And uh, the, the local jury convicted him of assault. And then, you know, he appeals this saying, in essence, I, as the per- the possessor renter um, of a slave am entitled to shoot her. And um, Ruffin then uh, overturns the uh the the conviction and says in essence that um in order for slavery to function as a system the uh slave owner or in this case possessor uh, of the slave has to have uncontrolled authority over the body of the slave so it's a very um it's a shockingly honest opinion and in that regard it's extremely useful for anti-slavery people, because you know, Ruffin, this new this person who's just gone on the court, is probably very interested in sort of you know um, exp- having a sort of expansive set of ideas um, and telling people why he's making these decisions is quite honest and straightforward. And so, it's very very useful to anti-slavery people in their advocacy. It's like, look, the people at the center of the Southern legal system are being are telling us that this is all about uncontrolled authority over the body of the slave, about brutality. There are essentially, the law does not limit um, how an owner or possessor treats a slave. Yeah, and, and, and he, in his opinion, is, is it's, doesn't express kind of normative agreement with the underlying thing, right? But if slavery is going to exist, then it ha- you know it, by it, definition it has, it has to, to have this stuff right? yeah it, it's in the, i think he says it's in the nature of things right so it's a really interesting it's a combination of like some of its natural law some of its instrumentalism i mean it's only what what is it like three page four pages long yeah very short i mean it's it's short but there's just so much in there. There's even a, this sort of chilling idea about if the if the slave knows, it's sort of reasoning about psychology, right? If the slave knows that an appeal can be had to another party, they, they won't be the slave won't be obedient, right? Um, and, and there's there's even I mean it's even more in there than that, right? Because he says something like the the slave must be made sensible that she will be under complete control. Um, even the most, I, I forget, sort of uh, senseless beast or something uh, must be made to understand, a, you know, they have to labor. So I, I, I'm mangling this a little bit, um, maybe a lot, actually. But, <laughs> That's um, all right. Uh, uh, there, you, you know, he's, he understands that enslaved people will understand that slavery is, is, is unjust. And yet the way you make slavery work is by beating people. So this opinion 
um, gets picked up. It's cited almost not at all in um, Southern opinions because, you know, sort of, it, it, I think the Southerners want to distance themselves and such. Southern judges want to distance themselves in some ways from this. And Ruffin even ultimately says, deals with a case where a, uh, a, an owner tortures a slave to death. And even Ruffin at that point says, you know, yeah, in this case, this person's so barbarous, uh, they can be convicted of, of manslaughter or, or whatever it is, second degree. Um, so even Ruffin distances himself from some of the more outrageous stuff. But, but this gets cited all the time by anti-slavery people. And then, uh, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe picks this up in the wake of, of Uncle Tom's Cabin and crafts a, 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 an important part of one of her novels around a judge who's anti-slavery in private, but issues a pro-slavery decision. And this person's based on Ruffin. And, uh, you know, she's trying to answer the question, why is it that uh, a, a person who understands the inhumanity of slavery would still issue this decision? And her answer, much like Robert Cover is, uh, because that's what law compels. Hmm. One of the things I find interesting about it is the way it sets up this binary right? The world with slavery is one of, there's no such thing as a benevolent halfway slavery. It's this world of domination and brutality. Uh, and, and that's the only way. And that, that is, um, so so it sets up this binary. If you're going to have this uh, system, it is going to be this one where you either, where you have to, uh, discount completely the humanity of the slave, right? Uh, uh, because there's nothing in between, um, yeah. For, for some of the reasons Joe mentioned, some of the reasons that you mentioned, right, that, uh, you know, if, if you do anything else, then suddenly it's not slavery anymore, right? And the system falls apart. What's interesting is you find this echoed in the history leading up to the Nat Turner Rebellion and beyond, right, that there is um, this whole system that you're in. It has to be one of complete domination. It certainly feels the way you tell the history of the of the rebellion. It feels that way, right? You get the sense of the nervousness of whites uh, with freed blacks around and of any kind of like free speech or freedom of religion, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, it, the, the sense, uh, and I think this is probably accurate, right? It's not just they're, they're, they're deluded. The, the sense of the master class, the owning class is, it's to take, take really tight control over enslaved people or the whole system will fall apart. Um, j- just to close the circle on Ruffin, Right. He he deals with writes a number of uh, opinions on slavery after State v. Man. Some of what he's engaged in are sort of um, efforts to make sure that slave owners treat enslaved people like slaves. In North Carolina, you had a lot of Quakers who were very uncomfortable with the institution of slavery. They would be the nominal owners of people, but that allow the enslaved people to do whatever they wanted so they could work on their own account. Um, live, you know, away from their, in quotes, owners. And huh. this was a real challenge to the institution of slavery, right? Because you have, they're people who are enslaved, but are sort of acting as though they're free. And, you know, Ruff and other people also would talk about how this was a bad model um, example for other enslaved, because other enslaved people would say, hey, I want that deal too. It's interesting. It may be, it may be profane to make this analogy, but I'm going to go ahead and and, and make it uh, because you do see this in other areas of the law that are that are less fraught with human rights concerns. But in uh, the environmental movement, of course, there was a there was a move to uh, 
uh, for environmental groups to bid on oil and gas leases on public yeah. lands in order not yeah. to use them, right? And this sense that, no, these lands are for this purpose, uh, yeah. and you yeah. have to, you know, that the system falls apart if we don't, you know, I, I don't know, yeah. I mean, I, I see I see the apt analogy. You know infinitely more about, about that than I do. I remember seeing some, you know, it wasn't somebody prosecuted for having bid on those and then not... Um, not use them or interfered with the bidding process or something because he wasn't going to be used. Yeah, it, it, there was a pervasive sense uh, among um, s- Southern lawyers and judges that you know the the system had to be held together very tightly or it would collapse. And I think that's probably you know the 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 price of totalitarianism is eternal vigilance or something like that, right? That it ha- it did have to people had to be controlled or you know the the desire for freedom that's inherent in all of us and so central to the American legal system would undo all of this. The desire for the uh, freedom, the freedom to own slaves depends so strongly on this communitarian ethic backed up by law, right? I mean, it's like, you know what I mean? It's so there's, there has to be a move towards strong communitarian norms. If slavery is going to exist as a system. It's, it's very interesting, right? Usually we think about, you're exactly right. Usually we think about, um, slavery as a system of, you know, property rights. And so, you know, exactly. Nobody loves property more than Americans. Um, (laughs) and yet there's also this system where, you know, but if you, you as a slave owner are not, treating your your enslaved human property the right way we will take those people away from you and you know put them in the to the hands of somebody else who will treat them like enslaved people it's we we love we allow people to do whatever they want with property until that starts to unwind the whole system you know sl- slave owners who are trying to free enslaved people via will often are not not permitted to do that you know, so there's, a, there's another famous case. Stowe actually deals a little bit with this in her novel, Dread a Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp, of a man who, a, a slave owner who took his child, uh, who was also the son of, uh, of a woman he owned, took the mother and the child to Ohio, freed them, and then came back to Mississippi. And when he died, he left, you know, all of his uh, property to that, that son and his relatives said, you know, no, this is, you can't do this. This, you can't give freedom. Um, and so they ended up, the relatives ended up as owners of this man's son and, and, and mother. Who was um, in fact supposed to take under the will. Who was supposed to take under the will. Right. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great example of how, you know, we allow um, property owners to do whatever they want with their property until we don't like what they're doing. And then no, we don't care anymore. The, you're a rich slave owning man doesn't matter. So the the um the threat represented by people not treating their slaves as the pro-slavery uh folks want them to be treated, etc. Yeah. Um and ultimately this is sort of as we were heading toward a conversation about Nat Turner's rebellion. You know this history all of it a, a lot better than I do, but but aren't there very practical concerns? It's it's not speculative to for a person living in 1830 when they know that um, in, in Saint-Domingue, the slaves successfully revolted, yeah. right, and created the nation of Haiti. Um, that, so it actually happened, and it actually yeah. happened not too far away, right? It, uh, it, so, so, that, so that's a great, that's a, a great story that, that's there, right? So people, um, sl- former slave owners who fled um, Haiti in the, um, 
as part part of the Haitian Revolution, uh, you know, and a lot of them end up in Charleston. And so, you know, they're living reminders of, you know, what can happen when a slave society falls apart. There's, there's a guy that, that is connected in some ways to, to both of, of you, um, Thomas Cobb, who was, uh, you know, long at Athens, uh, a lawyer in Athens and, and taught it, I think the predecessor to the University of Georgia Law School is the Lumpkin Law School or something like that. Yep. He's one of the founders. Yep. Yeah. One of, one of, one of the, one of the, one of the founders of, of, of UGA Law, you know, wrote an extensive treatise, I think it run maybe 600 pages called An Inquiry into the Law of Negro Slavery. And about the first half of the treatise is all about the history of slavery. And, um, you know, so sitting in his study in, in Athens, Georgia, he's looking, casting a, a, a broad net from ancient Egypt, Greece, Rome, India, up until the, um, you know, he's writing this in the 1850s, up through the 1850s. And one of the, a major section of, of what he talks about is the emancipation in Haiti. Um, and then in the West Indies, in the wake of the British emancipation, and what a disaster that is demographically and economically for um, the slave owning class. Mm. And, and, you know, these are the arguments that he marshals. And you, you read this and it's understandable why people and why slave owners, after they read this treatise, would think, yeah, no, uh, abolition will be a disaster. Cobb, the whole interesting guy, I don't know, maybe we should do a separate. <laughs> um, talk about him, but the, the listen to the right. The short version is is amazing. I think he's one of the um, most important yet ignored figures in Southern intellectual history. So he writes this important treatise, published in 1858. Um, gets a bunch of citations, and Civil War begins in 1861. So I mean, there's not a lot of time there, but it gets a lot of citations. Very, and, and he's drawing on all sorts of like ethnography, pseudoscience about how, uh, you know, the argument of the time is uh, black people and white people have separate um, biological origins. I mean, it's really interesting stuff. Yeah, that, that book is, it's like half, so it's half restatement of slave law. Yeah. And half uh, the other stuff, part of which is a natural rights justification for Na- race-based slavery, racial slavery. And natural yeah. rights. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's like Wikipedia of pro-slavery thought. I mean, there's everything is in that thing. I mean, anything and everything is just gets all wrapped together. But so listen to, so, so then in 1860, right after Lincoln's election, when Georgia, which is the sort of critical key state in, in all of this, because South Carolina wants to rebel at any moment, but Georgia, um, you know, people are a little bit, well, eh, I'm not sure this is such a great idea. So he's central. He goes down to, to make and to, you know, make the case for secession. He's central to that. Then you know, he takes to the battlefield and he's a general in the Confederate army, dies at Fredericksburg. I mean, he's, he is a activist scholar, like virtually none we've ever seen before or since. It would be good. To, let's, let's do Nat Turner and then maybe come back to this and yeah. the contact and, and also um, uh, maybe the more general thoughts about heritage and specific, um, uh, you know, the, the deification of ancestors and, or just, you know, the anti-deification of ancestors and battlefields and monuments and things all of it yeah, yeah. monuments and Cobb maybe another another day Natural. yeah because well yeah it may be another day maybe we can get to a little bit of it because part of you know when I read after you came to talk at the law school I, I went and I actually read uh, a good chunk of that book and we'll link it up on the 
show notes as well. Cops, it's it's an easy. You can scan through it. It's an easy scan. I encourage our my students to look at it uh, when when this issue comes up, and because uh, he's one of the you know when you think about people who are kind of of our tribe, academics. In my mind, he's one of the clear like academic villains in history, judged from a modern you know point of view, and without a lot of great compensating qualities. Uh, and <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I, so this is the historian in me, right? Who thinks like got to look at this person in, in his in his time. I mean, I like to think that, you know, were he alive today, he would, you know, because he was so sort of interested in in evidence and sort of, you know, see sort of things differently, that he'd be, you know, one of the people arguing in favor of reparations for the era of slavery. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, but. Yeah, but may, maybe. But like, you know, part of it is uh, history is littered with people who have suffered things they shouldn't have suffered, right? Who have li- mm-hmm. led miserable lives on account of circumstance, and it, it sucks. There's nothing we can do about it. One way that a person uh, can suffer is to be, in retrospect, a true villain, right? I mean, so, yeah, it, you know, it, it sucks that he wasn't born at a time when he didn't act in a way that perpetuated this institution that led to so much misery and actual human suffering. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I feel bad for him in that way. Um, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that he's anything other than a villain in, in history. If you take the view that, uh, that blacks are the equal of whites in, in every respect, right. Then this guy is, uh, you know, it's, it's he's sucks, on the wrong he side of history for sure. No, no question about that. Yeah. Uh, so, but so Christian, so let me try this one other um, thing, and I, I meant to mention this when we were talking a little bit about Ruffin, right? But I think oddly and improbably, he is one of the most important people in the emancip- in the end of slavery um, in our country. Says right. So you think about like who's responsible for ending slavery: Lincoln, uh, Frederick Douglass, Stowe, Sherman, um, Grant. Absolutely. And it's a short list before you get to Ruffin and Cobb, who completely unintentionally, um, I think, you know, pushed the country towards civil war. You know, Cobb, without Cobb, maybe, you know, it's a little bit of pressing the case, but without Cobb and a, and a small cadre of people just like him, Georgia doesn't leave. Without Georgia's secession, you know, civil war doesn't have to unfold the way it does. Slavery continues maybe for decades. Uh, completely unintentionally, right? right. He's a, a terrible politician, and it maybe was easily predictable this was going to unfold in a very bad way for 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 the um, for the Confederacy. But and that happens so often in 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 history. And this is maybe a nice transition to talking about Nat Turner because I think there, you could ask the same thing about Nat Turner. Does you know did he does his rebellion make slavery better or worse? Yeah, let, why don't you tell us? Do you do you mind giving us like a a summary a summary of the rebellion? Partly because you know I I, I feel immersed in this period. Partly because I just finished uh, reading your piece, and I and we're going to link it up. So yeah. every, I think everyone should read it. It's eminently readable. You don't have to be a legal scholar to understand it, uh, and it's uh it really it makes you feel in a way that the best uh, scholarship can make you feel. Love, so love you guys. Um, the um. So, so the Nat Turner Rebellion um, is very short-lived. It lasts for about two days in August of 1831. And uh, Nat Turner is an enslaved man uh, who was born in Southampton County, Virginia, which is right in the southeast corner of Virginia. It's right above North Carolina, and it's just inland from Norfolk. So um, it's, it's, in a, it's a rural part of the 
of Virginia even today. And back then it was, I mean, just incredibly remote in a lot of ways. And Turner's about 30, 31 years old. Um, he was a contemporary of Dred Scott, who was also from Southampton. Um, and so this is this interesting question of whether they ever interacted, whether they knew one another. It's entirely possible that that would be the case. And that, anyway, so, but uh, Turner, um, you know, gets together a small group of, of people, some of whom he's related to by marriage. And um, they go and begin by killing the family that owns Turner. And then they sort of, you know, gather steam as they go through the county, killing uh, their former owners and and owners of fa- of their family members. This is a, there's something that I think is extremely sort of um, tribal about this. It's 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 it's, it's and, and it speaks to what I imagine was extraordinary brutality. There's something very dark um, in South going on in Southampton County. And people have looked at this sort of point out that like the the people who were killed um, were you, you know knew. In many instances, many of the rebels. I mean, it was like these people. It, it was sort of anyway. It is a brutal. T- Do you mind backing brutal. up just a little bit, though? Yeah, because yeah. Um, uh, one thing that struck me in reading it was um, how, first of all, apparently intelligent Nat Turner was, like preternaturally intelligent, or at least uh, unusually intelligent, and and I, charismatic. Did you say charismatic, and and like many people at the time, I think deeply religious. And religious. And so there's a time leading up to the rebellion where he's seeing signs and eclipses. There's an unusual number of eclipses that happened around that time. And you also mentioned the eruption of Mount St. Helens, which made the eclipse right before the rebellion started a very unusual color. And all of that, you know, you're thinking of like, what is it like to be enslaved, to see brutality around you, to live in a brutal time, to live in a in, in a in a deeply religious slash mystical uh, time. And, and you're. And he's, you just imagine a guy who is just so impassioned and righteously impassioned. And, and how does that, you know, so that's those days leading up to the rebellion or even weeks leading up to the rebellion seem to me uh, amazingly intense. In, 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 intense. And, it's, you know, the, one of the questions is, you know, how much planning was there? And, you know, so a- after the rebellion's over, it's very short lived. They have a few, I don't know, successes, maybe not quite the right way to, Talk about it, but they're, you know, they at some point, I guess, middle part of the, the the first day of the rebellion, begin to be confronted by armed militia, and the rebellion sort of unfolds, dwindles out, and uh, there's extraordinary brutality, not just as part of the 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 rebellion, but as the aftermath, as enslaved people, um, and some free free people of African descent are, um, are tortured and killed. And, and, and to be more specific, because I think, you know, specificity here is important. Yeah. You know, like you said, the, the, the rebellion were moving from house to house, murdering whole families and, and their strategy, yeah. or at least it, apparently the strategy was to kill every white person that they saw for a time in kind of a shock and all kind of campaign. And then to move into a more, as they assembled an army, a more regular. So it's a, it's a typical strategy, asymmetric strategy, right? Where you have to do something to kind of shock the system. And then the brutality, you know, once the militias got in, it wasn't just, you know, putting them in handcuffs. There was one, you mentioned one episode where, you know, uh, actually an innocent slave's foot was burned off and then another where an ear was cut off. And then the guy was tied to a horse who, who dragged him, dragged, uh, dragged him to death. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these are seriously brutal times. It, it's brutal, right? And and so part of the, the the in the in the aftermath of this, the white community is you know again sort of revisiting like, hey, what like s- some people think this is 
um, the result of not having kept enough control over over Turner and other slaves, right? So there's part of this is there's a a sense in the white community that we need to have lock this system down even more. Other people in the white community are appalled by this level of violence. There's one person who's like, look, this is this is barbarism we associate with Native Americans. This this isn't something we should be doing. And then the Virginia legislature takes up the question of whether there should be some action statewide against slavery, right? This is this inspires, this is one of the rare instances in American history where I think violence invites not only a retreat to more violence in return, but, you know, introspection about whether slavery is what people in Virginia should be engaged in. Not only does that legislative reconsideration occur, but you also mentioned that there's uh, at, at the University of North Carolina, um, there are yeah. letters that come in of, of, you know, where there seems to be some kind of like nascent student activism and, and, and university activism about this and leading the way intellectually. What is it about? Why, why was their reaction to this? Was it the white brutality in the aftermath or what led to this? Or, or was it just the sense that um, that this just shows yeah. that the only way to preserve this institution is is brutality and, and that this is the cost we're not willing to accept? I mean, I think I think it's I think it's all of those things. So, so let me just one really interesting story about about cha- what's going on in Chapel Hill, right? So so you see every, all sides in Chapel Hill. You get you know a graduation speaker the next spring who comes and says, "Hey, uh, y'all know what we're dealing with here. We need to get rid of slavery. We need to do something about that." And then um, and that person ends up on the North Carolina Supreme Court, actually. And, and then you also get you know the students who are writing the governor and, and say something like, you know. Um, Boy, it looks like the slaves here might be coming insurrectiony, and uh, we need guns and uh, send as many as you can. So you know, it's, it's like the, the reactions go in sort of all different directions, and I think you know part of this is some people in the white community are thinking um, we need to maintain extraordinary control over the enslaved population so that we don't get any more Nat Turners, right? And that, that's why you need this sort of shock and on, you know, brutality to um, beheadings and all of this so that nobody will, will ever rebel again. And yet you also have some in the white community who, as, as you suggested, Christian are, you know, appalled by this level of, of violence. And, and I think it goes in two ways, right? One, they're afraid of rebellions. Um, and, and so, you know, they turned to say, Hey, I don't want to be involved in something where, where there'll be, you know, a native population that wants to wants to rise up and, and, and kill us. The second, I think, is they're appalled by the level of brutality in the institution of slavery. And so you get these sort of two strands that lead to anti-slavery sentiment. Some of this is, is economics as well, right? The, the people who are most anti-slavery are in the largely western part of West Virginia, uh, of, of uh, Virginia, what's now West Virginia, right? Because West Virginia breaks off from Virginia during the Civil War. And uh, and then the people in the more heavily enslaved areas are like, no, the system's good. You know, don't take my property away. I have a question about the actual people involved um, in in the rebellion, the uh, and the degree to which it, do we know how many people who got killed were related to their killers through uh, the rape of black women by white men? No, but I would love to know. I, I would love to know that that figure. I mean, I imagine it could be the case that there were people who were participating who were killing, when they were killing the white families, were killing, you know, 
an uncle, their relatives, um, a father. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I, I take, and again, I'm cousins. Right. So, so because rape was fairly common, was it not? I mean, the, the rape of black women by white men. Sure. Sure. One of the things that makes the Nat Turner rebellion, I think a, a really interesting project for historians is there's, there's enough data there that you can, you know, learn a lot about people, but there's also enough that we don't know and we'll never know because the records aren't aren't complete enough that, that there uh, there's room for speculation right right and so some of this is you know this question about whether nat turner's you know whether he is part white and sort of you know his relationship with um other people who were killed um and and certainly the sort of some of the other people who were with him from the beginning yeah, Al, yeah, Al, you said in the article there was a quote, I think in his, what is it, his wanted ad, his wanted poster was yeah. that he has a, a light complexion or a bright complexion, yes. but is not a mulatto. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason I asked about this specifically is because there's a sense in which, and I wonder if it was acknowledged at the time in arguments that people were making either rough and like arguments about the fact that, you know, enslaved women just... <laughs> Uh, just have to submit to this um, uh, because it's part of the slavery institution. Or on the other hand, um, people trying to discourage uh, this activity by by white owners. It, the, this orgy of death, it's also an orgy of suicide. It's like we're killing ourselves because we are creating the pe- literally creating the people who are who may rise up um, against us. They are us. There are it's our family that we're creating that's engaged in this act of self-destruction. So I wonder, did people at the time, were people talking about the degree to which the enslaved people were actually also... Were, were, were family members? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of talk about that at the time, um, but not as it relates to the rebellion. I mean, the in the aftermath of the rebellion, what the newspapers are filled with is reports of the violence both uh by the rebels against the white community and by the militia against the rebels that to me is what is is sort of so they're just so focused on this and there's some very important i think stories that arise out of you know owners who then petition the legislature to ask for compensation um after their slaves have been killed during the rebellion, right? So the story in Virginia, and I think it is true of most Southern states, is that if a slave is executed um, after a trial, the owner gets compensation. But if a slave, you know, sort of is killed as part of the rebellion, of a rebellion or dies otherwise, no compensation. Hmm. And so owners petition the Virginia legislature and say, hey, you know, my, my slave was killed as uh, you know, was executed by the militia. Um, one, case, one case, I think they put his head on a pole to try and, as a warning to others, as the rebellion was going on. And so, you know, give me some money. And the legislature uniformly rejects those. Um, and it's, it goes back to sort of, you know, the I, core ideas I think about property rights, which is, you know, we we love property, but um, at least in the 19th century, people were expected to bear the risks of loss of property on their own. And that's what that's the is that the instance where the uh, the road is still named? Yes. Yeah. So there's a great story about this 
there's a road in um in Southampton County called Blackhead Signpost Road. Oh my! Uh, because this is where the rebel's head was put on a pole, and then I guess after you know, sometime after they had just had that, there was a like a a post that was painted black. Um, it's still to this day called Blackhead Signpost Road. There's actually a move afoot now. Um, started last uh, summer in the wake of you know taking down the Confederate flag from the the state house grounds and. And then all this other, you know, talk of renaming and, and taking down Confederate Monument. So, uh, an African American, uh, I think he was a Marine veteran, uh, went to the county uh, meeting and said, um, "County commission said, hey, uh, I'm against this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we we need to we need to stop this.' So I don't know. It's it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens. The origin of the name of the road is we wanted to have a, a, a warning to other rebels. So, so in the wake of this rebellion, there are there are you know many different reactions. Maybe two dominant schools of thought. One of them is represented by the the military man Epps, who comes into town and yeah, yeah. And, and and encourages people not to engage in this uh, in in kind of the um, revenge oriented terrorism uh, uh, and to appeal to the law. And and so part of this, you know, there are several schools of thought. I guess I mean one of them is that. Uh, if we channel all of our oppression through the rule of law, it becomes much, much more powerful and we can preserve slavery with uh, with better efficacy and and uh, uh, and greater likelihood of success than if it becomes a matter of roving uh, militiamen and and random acts of violence. Right. Sure. Sure. I mean, let me say and part of this, I think, is. Um, you know, there's a struggle in the in this time period to to get everybody within the rule of law, right? This is an era of, of mobs, a lot of violence. I mean, at, at some point, there's just the, the idea of, of people not following the rule of law, e- even if in some ways it helps to re-entrench the system of slavery. It's, 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 it's dan- mobs are dangerous. Mm-hmm. So what was the other? You said two. There were two. What was the other? Well, well the other is exactly that. It's, it's the somewhat lawless but immediate in, infliction of violence on on disobedient slaves, right? right? So it's uh, kind of taking the state versus man rule. And exp- and expanding it, right? I mean, yeah. I think, so state versus man and the Nat Turner Rebellion are super interesting and they occur within like what, a, a year of one another, right? So, and it's almost as though Ruffin anticipates what's going to happen in, in Nat Turner, you know, because he's like, um, in order to make the system function, we have to have control over the enslaved population. If we don't have that, it all falls apart. And so, you know, he's releasing owners from culpability or from liability. So like, the law isn't going to go there. This is going to be sort of a, a lawless area. Maybe we should talk about the more general, even though I have a lot of specific things, this is just going to have to be, you know, we, we say this a lot because we have so many interesting guests, but this is, you know, I definitely want to return to this because I, I want to hear about slave patrols. I want to hear about uh, uh, the black codes. I want to hear about uh, lynchings in, in, and the, and the uh, return of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are, I think, just not, oftentimes not part of uh, uh, or not core to uh, American history education in so many places that are, you know, you just see things in a different way when you look at these incidents. And, and, and just learning again about the Nat Turner Rebellion in this period from 1830 to 1861 to 1865, you can just 
the intensity of this issue just drips off the page, right? It's just this is a, a societal revolution in the making, and there's something about this period, 1830, 31, yeah. that is like – that stirs the pot enough where where people are going to have to take sides on this, right? You're exactly right. I mean, I think the period in the 1830s is really critical. And there's a bunch of reasons why. Part of this is um, print is much more, is much less expensive. So, you know, you're, there's a communications revolution. People are beginning to know more and, and about what's going on. Um, abolitionists are becoming much more powerful in part because um, they're able to uh, mobilize. Um, and at the same time, slavery is becoming much more economically uh, profitable. You've got, you know, these natives are being pushed out successfully from Georgia, Alabama. Um, and so, you know, as slavery becomes more entrenched because it's more economically important, um, you also have in, in the North mostly but elsewhere in the South also growing anti-slavery sentiments. So this, you know, it really becomes uh, divisive in a way that it had not been up until that point. So 1830s, uh, really, really critical. You've got Nat Turner, you've got the abolitionists becoming much more aggressive. Um, you've got the pro-slavery people uh, getting much more entrenched. It's really, it's the turning point. And the political economy of the Constitution seemed to be speculation that over time this thing would sort of peter out. And you're, the, you're, you're describing a situation where now everyone's realizing it's not going to peter out. In fact, it's hitting the gas, right? Um, as the cotton economy starts to grow and the role of slave labor in the, in, cotton, in the cotton economy grows and the brutality that's required to extract the maximum profitability from that enterprise. And the restriction on rights of even free whites, right? I mean, right. You know, you, you can't, you can't, you can't be a, teach people how to, how enslave people, how to read. Yeah. When you have to those. ban the South ends up banning political parties eventually. Yeah. So it's all intensifying, yeah. it's, and which was, which is not only a thing that, that is, it has its own uh, divisiveness built into it, but it's against a backdrop where, wait a minute, we, we all got sold on the idea that this wasn't going to happen, right? That it was getting, that it was going to peter out and we didn't need to worry about it. Right. I mean, what's interesting, and I think one way to convey this is, you know, it used to be in 1776, sorry, Declaration of Independence, we had the idea that natural law was against slavery. All people are created equal. By 1861, the natural law argument is, is based on Aristotle, that, that people are not created equal. In fact, there's hierarchy in nature and that some people should labor as slaves for others, right? That's the direction that that thought went in from um, all people are created equal to slavery as part of the natural order. It went in the wrong direction, you know, from revolution to civil war. I want to talk more generally about this idea of reverence and how we look at our past and how we deal with uh, yeah. uh, this. And, 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 and we were just talking about this with my Supreme Court discussion group students last night. The discussion was was kind of a follow-up to Constitution Day, um, at which at, at one event, I, I think I said that the Constitution really was not all that. It is a genius document in so many ways, but it also was an explicit slavery compromise. And in many ways, it was an undeniable failure. 
a, a, a colossal failure that right. resulted in a war that killed more Americans than all other wars combined. And, and, and it contained in it great evil, just as it, cre- it contained in it, you know, great ideas and, and, uh, which, you know, we it t- took a while to, on, on which to, uh, uh, to deliver. And so, you know, why is this? And part of it is, you know, one of, one of the students mentioned, you know, uh, elementary school education, where you learn about the founding fathers as kind of superheroes, yes, and uh, that they, you know, King George is the is the enemy, and you learn this kind of comic book story, and you learn about some unfortunate things. You know, there was slavery once, and now slavery is gone, and that was very important, and that's another reason why Lincoln is among the superheroes. Uh, uh, you know, even in the South, of course, you you learn this these days, right? And the, the Civil War was at least mostly about slavery. You learn, I think, these days. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in elementary school, it was like, oh, it was very complicated. Slavery was really bad, but that really wasn't all the Civil War was about, or it wasn't mostly what it was about. And so, I think there's a more accurate story being told today. But still, this idea of of reverence and that it is somehow irreverent to to acknowledge the Constitution's many, many failings and and the reasons for many of its many of the rights that it contains. And, you know, one of the ways that I that I talk to some students about this and, and think about it sometimes is that most of the and I think I said this on the show before too, so I may be repeating myself, but most of what people when people think about what it means to be free as an American, when they think of freedom and America with the stars and stripes and the eagle and all that, and they think about what it means to be a free American. All of those ideas, I think, are 14th Amendment ideas, right? I, I just think that most of what people associate with freedom, the idea of equality, right? The idea yeah. of freedom from government generally, yeah. rather than just from a Congress. Uh, th- these, are, these are Civil War ideas. These, these founding fathers are people like Bingham, right? The, the radical Republicans. And, and these, of course, these amendments never would have been passed had the South not been forced at the, at gunpoint, basically to, to ratify them. So uh, it's a really, I think, complicated history. And, and I don't want to be too, like, I'm not going to say this, the constitution is an evil document, you know, or that it is a, it is purely a, a slavery document. I mean, I think I'm not so revisionist about it. I'm trying to think of a realistic way that we as Americans can, can be proud of parts of our past and at the same time realistic about it and what and what that lesson you know where we started the conversation what the lesson is for that complicated history uh, going forward but um go ahead al you were i mean it's so 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 many thoughts on, on that right this is what you're describing is one front on the culture wars about how we think about our past and how that will be taught to the next generation of students right and I mean, I remember growing up, I, for a while, I, I lived in Richmond, Virginia when I was little. This is, you know, early 1970s. You know, in elementary school, we were taught that, like, the South won the Civil War. I remember going home and, and being angry with my parents because they taught me the North won the Civil War, <laughs> you know. Um, so, um, and you understand why, you know, there has to be the elementary school and maybe high school even version is going to be largely celebratory. It's, it's, I mean, I understand that. Um, couple of things to think about it in this regard. One thing we haven't spoken about is Sean Wilentz's op-ed in the New York times. I don't know, a week and a half ago, um, where he was sort of taking on Bernie Sanders who said, you know, constitution pro slavery. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I sort of disagree with that. And that has set off a firestorm among historians. That's probably worth um, maybe a separate discussion about the mm-hmm. way in which Constitution was pro-slavery and and how Southerners took the Constitution and reaffirmed that and then used the U.S. Constitution's pro-slavery elements 
as a justification for for secession um, because they thought Lincoln's election would undermine their property rights. There's a g- really tons of interesting stories to talk about there. But your suggestion is a lot of what we now think of as what's great about the Constitution in the United States is the outgrowth of the 14th Amendment and the Civil War, the Reconstruction Amendments, rather than the original Constitution, right? And again, 100% agreement with that. The, the one thing I might, one one footnote I might add there is certainly within the African-American community, there's this strong tradition of looking to the Declaration of Independence. So, you know, and something that antedates the, the Constitution as a foundational document and that the Declaration sort of set us on the course um, that was, you know, confirmed and, and furthered by the Reconstruction Amendments. One thing uh, that always puzzles me, and I had this sense when I was reading um, Justice Roberts' um, ACA opinion, where you know he, he there's that people whenever they're talking about issues of federalism, will look at the Federalist Papers and sort of pre Civil War um, writings and precedent, and I'm like, why would you do that? The Fourteenth <laughs> Amendment rewrote entirely our and Civil War. Yep. Our understanding of federalism. Why? Why is anybody? How is it intellectually legitimate to be citing things like the Federalist Papers? I, I just, I don't get it at all. Um, yeah. I suppose there's a large literature on this. If there isn't, somebody can, you know, get a get a nice article in the Yale Law Journal or something uh, out out of that. This is sort of like uh, indicting the use of of um, pre Fourteenth Amendment federalism writing. Right. I just don't get it. I mean, I say, you know, I look, I don't engage largely in, in contemporary constitutional law, but I, I, I'd love to know why that is intellectually legitimate in any way, given how much the, the Civil War and 14th Amendment changed and was designed to change and rewrite the initial constitution's federalism. Well, one, I mean, I don't, I don't, you're right. It's a, that's a fascinating question. One, um, one germ of an idea about a, a contrary perspective might be that um, as much change as they wrought, as much change as happened with the Reconstruction Amendments and the in the aftermath of the Civil War, the states were not eliminated. They were not, nor were they made into mere administrative departments of the national government. Um, they 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 still exist. So sure, the, sure. So the, the, there was the the effort of making a new synthesis. Uh, still left in place some of the old original starting materials. And so trying to figure out what in the Federalist period that speaks to the relationship between state and nation can be redeemed even in the even in the context of the Reconstruction Amendments when states are still here. Um, yeah, that's a tough that's tough to figure out. Th- that's got to You've put the best face the one could possibly put, I think, on on that the the Calhoun you know strong state version was completely rejected. It was rejected on the battlefield, and then it was rejected by people who you know had fought the war when they were in Congress. Subsequently, I mean, it just seems to me as though it, it, sure, if you want to understand what remains of states, uh, uh, you know, independent autonomy post Civil War, I would think you'd look to stuff that was you know said. Around the time of the Fourteenth Amendment, rather than this sort of like earlier um, and and largely, I think, rejected ideas. Just to put a just to put a point on this, um, because I think what you're saying 
you know, the Constitution is oftentimes taught to students as having provisions relating to structure and, and provisions relating to rights. So rights are things, you know, First Amendment, you know, free speech, freedom of religion, et cetera. Structure being things like, uh, you know, uh, the uh, separation of powers in the federal government and then federalism, the separation of powers um, uh, between uh, the federal government and the states and then even uh, rights which are retained by the people and, and how all of these things work together and that the Supreme Court plays some role in preserving that kind of structural balance. And so, and there's lots of scholarship on how structure, structural protections are really rights protections and rights protections really involve structure. So there's lots of uh, stuff back and forth here uh, um, and, and a questioning of whether you can really cabin those. What, what you're talking about, I think, is, is goes, goes beyond what a lot of people would acknowledge. And that is that when you're talking about the protection of constitutional rights against the states, that to understand the meaning of those rights, we really should look at uh, the reframing, right? Uh, which I like to call it the reframing rather than just reconstruction or reconstruction amendments, but the reframing of the Constitution because there were no rights against the states uh, um, uh, until the Civil War. And that was, you know, this famous case which, which said you didn't have uh, right. constitutional rights against the states. So, and, and so oftentimes you will see in judicial opinions an appeal to the Understand, you know, the understanding of, say, the right to bear arms as it existed uh, around the time of recon- uh, Reconstruction and the reframing. Sure, uh, sure. But you're, you're, you want to go further and say that not only that, but we need to understand the provisions in the Constitution uh, relating to things like the Commerce Clause, federalism, full faith and credit, all of these structural pro- – we need to understand those through the lens of the reframing as well. Um, because the reframing clearly changed, it changed explicitly some structural balance between the states and the federal government, but it, but it really encompassed a, a broader, a broader movement. And, uh, so that goes beyond. And I think, you know, when I think about that, I think about, you know, the idea of states in our nation, right? Starting with the Articles of Confederation failed within a few years, right? Mm-hmm. The Constitution, the original Constitution failed within, uh, 80 years, right? Uh, uh, and now the reframing, which has, you know, lived on. How how far are we now? I guess uh, from uh, uh, I'm trying to do quick math. Plus 100, yeah, 150 plus, which is still yeah. you know uh, yeah. I think I think going back to the point that you raised at the very beginning about the life cycles, Al. I, um, it seems like forever to a student who's in kindergarten. It seems like, that. but but now <laughs> yeah, as we yeah. get older, it seems like well, this has gone well for 150 years, but that's not so long. So um, uh, so anyway, uh, this. I find your, you know, this is appealing because a lot of the reasons given by the framers of the Constitution of 1789 for structural allocations uh, between departments, like what they actually enacted based on those reasons failed, right? It, it failed to um, uh, to avert this. Now, maybe nothing could have happened to avert this war, right? And so maybe there still is a good bit of wisdom in their in their kind of structural reasoning. Uh, that you could mine for at least persuasive authority on this, but should it be the blueprint for our modern interpretation of the Constitution? And I, t- I take you to be saying no, right? Al? Uh, yeah, no, Christian. So um, a, a lot of very thoughtful stuff in there, and, and much more articulate than I'm able to yeah, to, to advance. No. <laughs> um, I, 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 um, and, and I don't mean to smear you with all that because I, no, I said no, a lot no, of stuff. No, no, it's, 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 it's all yeah. it's all great. I, I mean the. Um, so, so there's a couple of things, right? I think Obama, you know, maybe is one person we could turn to for, for some of this, right? So he writes about how he thinks of the Constitution as a continuing entity, right? 1787 mm-hmm. it was modified through the Reconstruction Amendments. And, and what you're presenting is a little bit more of a, 
a stark and I think probably more accurate version of, you know, there was this constitution that was not able to resolve internally the dispute uh, that, that, and hence we had civil war. Although I think, I suppose there's some people, Obama is one of them, I think, who, who, who view that as a more continuous, um, the constitution was able to hold the North together. Um, and then through that, we were able to overcome this, the secession um, you know, crisis. But if you've got this sort of vision of this sort of reconstruction amendments, re- really rebooting, reframing the Constitution, I suppose you could say this happens again in the modern civil rights era, too, right? When there's like we begin to have a, a more expansive version of the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause is no longer the you know, laughing stock that it was when, you know, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes de- mm-hmm. decided Buck v. Bell when it was like the equal protection clause of whatever the last refuge of constitutional scoundrels or whatever it is he says there. Yeah. And I don't mean to say that these are the only moments because I'm a fan of the constitutional moments idea, um, at least as a descriptive idea. And I think also in, in many ways normative because the Great Depression is another one of these uh, moments. Another, you know? another, another. Yeah. I mean, really, where it's like, wow, we, we you know, we have the, the language of the constitution's the same, but but our understanding of it is, is vastly different. Yeah. No, but th- from my point, it was like, and I don't spend a ton of time work reading or working in contemporary constitutional law, but it's just reading, you know, um, Chief Justice Roberts, whatever, per oration um, in the uh, ACA case where, you know, I think he cites everything he cites in the in that sort of first section is either, you know, Chief Justice Marshall or um, Federalist Papers or that. I mean, I don't think there's anything that he cites in that that's that's post-1867. Um, post, you know, uh, 14th Amendment, it was just, it so struck me that if what you're thinking about is what's the relationship between the states and the federal government, at least the place to start, I would think, um, would be, you know, 14th Amendment and afterwards. And, and maybe Joseph may very well be correct. We can go back and look at some of the, 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 you know, stuff from 1787 and, and thereabouts as a way of sort of, you know, understanding the baseline against which the Fourteenth Amendment was was um, was working, but it just seems to me as though so much of our understanding of the relationship of the states to the federal government derives from the rejection of the strong state thesis, the Calhoun Constitution, that was you know the south the South's vision. And, but of course, uh, you know, and of course, he would say that he's interpreting the Commerce Clause in that case, and. While the Fourteenth Amendment did many things, it did not change the Commerce Clause, and uh, he's a bit more pragmatic, I think, than purely textualist or originalist, um, like some on the court. But, uh, but, but I think that would be his response, right? I, I, I suppose so. Um, I, I mean, but there's so much of the Commerce Clause interpretation, uh, you know, that was what allowed the South to have this vision that they could secede, gets rejected. I mean, I, you know, I guess it, it goes to textualism. Yeah, but uh, boy, I don't know. It just it, it, and I look at this as a historian, not in this regard, more as a historian than as a contemporary constitutional, you know, lawyer, because uh, I that isn't an area that that I work in. But it just it just seems so intellectually bankrupt to me to be not talking about this sort of fundamental change in the relationship of the states to the federal government. It just it's 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 interesting to me, you know, coming at it from a different vantage. 
Can, can we wind up on on a maybe a, a more it, it's not personal to any of us, but a more personal kind of kind of issue it would, to which we can't fully do justice, but maybe we can do some mischief Love and, to. and hopefully not some injustice. Love to. Uh, and, and this is, you know, this relates to uh, the, the, the recent um, debates over the Confederate flag and monuments and et, et cetera. But I want to think of it in terms of people's attachments to their ancestors um, and how we should deal with this, this problem. Of course, people, people don't want to have their ancestors called evil, right? And, 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 and everything they fought for or everything right. that they made uh, evil and, and, or assimilated and with the Nazis. Not good, it's not a good – not only do they not want it, it, it probably isn't a good strategy to do that. Right? Sure. And, and, but I think more than that, it's not, it's not realistic in, in, in you know, maybe a capital R sense of realistic, <laughs> right? Because people are complicated. People, people live in their times. Um, it's too easy to let people off the hook for being people of their, of their times. Uh, you know, I'm not a fan of doing that, you know, so what does an honest reckoning looks, look like it, it recognizes that, I guess that, that, uh, that, that people are constituted by their, by their culture and every now and then someone will make, uh, what we see now as a morally heroic choice. Uh, but often, most of the time people don't do that. Um, most of the time, you know, even in the this 18 intense 1830s period you see people who make what looks like the kind of pro liberation choice but it's really these are kind of what you paint in the article is kind of milk toast suggestions about compensation and gradual returning of slaves to liberia um yeah. you know and so it's i'm wondering if we can kind of get a you know how to move the debate forward a little bit where we can we can say, you know, as, as a society, we, you know, we don't want to, uh, uh, we, we do want to take down these Confederate monuments. We don't want the Confederate flag. These don't represent us now. And our future is, uh, uh, is, is not in revering the past. It is in building a better future. Uh, but at the same time, we are not, you know, we're not totally forgetting the past. We're not totally denigrating our ancestors. If you, if your ancestors are Confederate soldiers or, inappropriately deifying people and the other if the union soldiers or what you know so we're not we're not trapped in that uh but maybe a more realistic understanding of human beings that human beings are not purely evil or purely good um but instrumentally when we think about our past for the purpose of figuring out who we are uh then we have to reckon with these things and about the moral choices that they made i don't know i'm probably not saying this very well but i'm I, trying to say something in between uh, you're, you're saying incredible, incredibly well. Um, the the controversy over flags and monuments is is um is is so hard to un un unwrap, right? Um, cu- couple of thoughts on this: right? the, the flag needs to go because whatever it once meant, um, and and I and I believe a, a number of people who say this isn't about racism, this is about hair. I, I believe that it. it for them, I think that's probably accurate. The problem is it has become so much a symbol of um, white supremacy and, um, and and brutality. That has to go. I completely agree. Um, I did a piece, a, a very short, you know, um, op-ed piece this summer, you know, asking whether the Confederate flag is unconstitutional. Dis- display of it on public property is unconstitutional because of what it says 
um, to African, you know, to African Americans. Um, happy for for the flag, and, and I think it it should be taken down from public property. I think that's exactly the right move. Monuments are are tougher, right? So I think about the the Confederate monument that's in Athens, um, right outside. You're on the the street right outside the, the UGA main gates, um, and you know that to me strikes me as that is presents a, an opportunity for people to reflect on sort of that once there was um, the dominant idea that we should erect monuments to the era of Confederacy. What's that mean about us as a history? Um, who was in? Tells us, invites us to ask. You know, who was in charge um, in the whenever 1910s when that was put up? I think monuments. I think monument removal uh, threatens to erase memory, and so I'm skeptical. I'm worried whenever I see people wanting to take monuments down because I think it, it it facilitates forgetting. Now, there are some things I think Blackhead Signpost Road, that probably needs to go because that's also is sort of probably has some continuing contemporary um, impact that, you know, might might lead to to subordination of of um, African-Americans. I can see some monuments maybe need to go. Well, but look how look how, you know, look how um, I don't want to be too strong about it, but I think the the. The period of the Confederacy, the period of the Jim Crow era even, are a period of, I think, collective moral depravity, you know, and, and I, I think we need to say that. That's how we define ourselves going forward, that that is a, that was a depraved, those, that, those elements of that culture were morally depraved. There were others that were not, you know, there are people who are good to their families, very generous, charitable in all kinds of ways. People were not purely good or purely evil. Uh, they were all of these things. Yeah, they but, weren't that n- then any more than they are now. Exactly. Right? People today are not the best thing they've ever done, nor the worst thing they've ever done. They're people. And who knows in the future how our collective actions will be seen as having elements of depravity to of them. Course. I'm sure that they will. Uh, but I, one of the, you know, one way that we define ourselves in in the present is to decide what we will give over public space to and in what way, right? And what will we celebrate? And the act of taking down a monument is as much in a way a monument as as putting one up. It, it's a temporary fleeting thing rather than a permanent thing. But if we think about the ways that we try to keep the memory of the Holocaust alive and the Nazis alive, and, and I don't want to draw a direct analogy. I think there are many differences, um, but I also think sometimes those differences are overstated. Um, the brutality of slavery was brutal and inhuman on a monstrous scale. And I don't think anybody gains anything by denying that. But um, uh, Holocaust museums uh, keep that alive. Other things, you know, yeah. the, 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 uh, the camps themselves as museums sure. uh, uh, do that. So maybe the, maybe the thing to do with, maybe they're like constitutions. Maybe monuments need to be reframed. Yeah. I mean, and so taking the, the I'm sympathetic with the idea that, that Al's articulated that when you take something a, away when you take a monument down you it's an act of erasing that that might actually be counterproductive if the thought is how do we keep present a better understanding of the past right better because it more fully um reflects the things we've learned mm-hmm. and i think so if you take the monument down rather than adding to it right the, add something that explains more about the things that led to the monuments being placed here and the things uh, that it might have celebrated 
that now we might say it's here to help us make sure we don't forget bad things instead yeah. of it's here to help us celebrate good things. Let me just let me just take the case. See what I mean? Yeah, no, I you see, add exactly. to it. You don't take it away. Exactly. You make it bigger. You make it bigger or you, by adding new you, things. Or you can put it in a new context. You can move it to a new context or what have you. But let me take the example of Thomas Cobb. And to be clear, this founder of our law school, yeah. obviously I'm speaking just for myself as I always am. And because if I were ever speaking for my law school, it would be a total embarrassment, I'm sure. So <laughs> this is just speaking for myself. But you guys are um, funny. I, I think that Thomas, so, you know, um, it's very important not to see Thomas Cobb as a uh, as merely a portrait and founder and just these these really neutral adjectives who happened also, you know, he was wrong about some things like slavery. Like that's one way of looking at at Thomas Cobb. Right. Yeah. Did some great things like found the wall, did some other, but also some bad things. I think that's not right. I think his identity is totally bound up in this enterprise, which we now see as depraved and immoral. Um, it and, doesn't and, mean that, and importantly, he yeah. himself saw himself that way, as Al was talking about earlier, right? Right. He, he made affirmative uh, decisions about what to do with his own time and energy and intelligence and, um, and his uh, ability to accomplish things and move other people. Um, and what he devoted that to was apartheid. Exactly. And blood in service of apartheid. That's that is on him. <laughs> That's it do, really it specific. Mean, it doesn't mean that he was irredeemable in every way as a person, right. like like anybody else, right? He's right. like like uh, what is it? Helen Prejean says, like people are better than their worst act, yeah, right? or worst acts, or are better than even most of their bad acts, right? If if you're mostly bad acts, right? So he's this is not a like a a biblical condemnation of him as a as an as a totally corrupted soul. But the fact is that what he stood for is anathema to everything we stand for today, right? And so how do you deal with that? What do you do, – do you like burn all of his portraits? I don't think so. I think what, what you're saying, what Al is saying, I think there's a way to kind of get all of this together. I think, you know, he's a founder of our law school. We own up to this. We have his portrait uh, um, in various places. But I would – if it were up to me, I would attach – you know, I would not display him anywhere – where he is not attached. And I, I actually think like, you know, the, like the uh, Marley's chains and, in, in uh, Christmas Carol, right. That he carries around like yeah. attached by a, by a, by a thick, almost like comic book style chain to his portrait, wherever it is, should be that slavery tract. Like that those two things should always be together. Right. He's not, he's better than his worst act. He's better than the worst possible comic book version of him that you could paint. Of course. Right. But just as no one can fully escape the misery of their life, you know, or it doesn't totally deserve all of the miseries they encounter in life. And some people's lives are nothing but misery. And that has been, un- and he is unfortunate enough to have been constituted in the way that he was and to be main and to have lived a life, which is now mainly and inextricably associated with the advancement of apartheid and racial oppression and brutality. Yeah. And I don't. Moral disaster. And. And that's why I think the the display of that, right, that that should be such that you can never pull those apart. That's why the chain idea. So maybe with monuments too, right, maybe adding to them so that wherever there is that monument, there's a reminder, right, that there were people who suffered because of the actions of, of those people, right? Um, it doesn't mean that they were especially just random Confederate soldiers who were acknowledged in a cemetery or elsewhere who died, right? These are – who knows what they thought, right? And it is probably – uh, um, no one, at least of all me, would suggest that they were evil people. We need to, you know, denigrate them in any way. Like th- these are lives which were lost. Mm-hmm. This was a tragedy. But 
This was a collective tragedy due to this very morally laden struggle. And we have to remember those deaths in that context. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but um, I like both of these ideas, uh, you know, adding to um, getting rid of and putting in a new context. But the, the one thing that, 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 that bothers me is that is leaving them there and letting them lose their significance. So it's just another war memorial or it's just right. another memorial to a, a former leader, right? I think it's very important that we say now what these leaders mean to us now and that we get that, we get the answer to that question right. I, I don't, I, I, I think I agree with a hundred percent of, of what both of you have just said, if that's uh, possible. Um, cause I, I think they're overlapping part of adding to monuments, I, I think is it will then, um, allow us to have a sense of how history has changed over time. Right. So we thought in one way about this in 19, 19- 15, whenever the, you know, Athens Confederate Monument was put up. And we now think about this in, in a different way. I think adding to is, um, in most instances, much better than, than, than removal or, or not adding anything. There's a, there's a great example of, of sort of how this process of forgetting works, I think, that, that comes from Yale University. Um, up until fairly recently, they had a portrait of Elihu Yale, who I guess is the guy who gave money for, he's the namesake of Yale. And he was, in the portrait, he's being waited on by an enslaved child. His child has a metal collar on. And when Yale took the portrait down a few years ago, they took it down not because it was um, a, um, you know, a, a symbol of slavery that denigrated African-Americans or something like that, which would, would have been the reason I would have supported taking it down if you were going to take it down. They, they took it down because it, it, it apparently, or in their mind, improperly um, implicated Elihu Yale in slavery because he didn't own any human beings or something, right? So it's a, they took it down so that it, Yale would look better. Um, not they took it down so that they would not be perpetuating, you know, symbols of slavery in a prominent place on their campus. Um, and I think that's the, it's an illustration of how this forgetting process works. I think leave the portrait up and then explain why it is that their founder is being waited on by an enslaved child, because um, that was how the wealthy were treated in the you know middle of the 18th century when the portrait was painted. And, and in a way, how how liberating is it that you are you know w- when we recognize realistically and honestly these the past uh, that we don't necessarily feel like we're trying to live up to something. Our best moment was not was not was not the founding. Our best moment was not even the reframing. The best moment of Yale was not the beginning of Yale. Uh, the best moment is potentially what we do right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The um, history, it seems to me that whatever we do um, with removal or addition or leaving, the goal should be understanding of the past and its connections to the present. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and inspiring us to go forward in a positive way now. That, that strikes me as the sort of, and particularly at universities, right? Because what we're supposed to be about is, you know, investigation, improvement, um, education. It, it shouldn't be one particular, you know, necessarily celebratory piece of the past. It should be understanding, having a complete understanding who we were, who we are now, where we're going, and helping us get there. And that's a, and that that's a process. It's not, in a sense, you don't arrive. It's like there's a constant process of critical self-reexamination. You'll learn new things, you'll think yeah. new things, uh, and you right. can continue to do that. 
Right, right, exactly. And that's why, I mean, I think, you know, have the monument there, then add another layer. And, you know, in 50 years when we're all vegetarians or whatever it is that, you know, <laughs> we'll have a new, you know, investigation of why it was that, that you know, students were and faculty were going and eating other animal eating animals and things. Like, I mean, each as we evolve, um, have each layer added on top of, of, of the, the, the previous one. But it's great stuff. And I think the pro the discussion of what we should do is almost as important as whatever it is we end up doing. Right. Mm. It's us because we learn from that. Well, I wish this could go on forever. And, and, uh, and, and now we, we seriously are going to have you back and, and, and I think future discussions could be about specific issues, broad issues. Pretty much, I don't care as long as you come back and we get to talk to you. I, I mean, you guys are, are phenomenal. I don't know how you have the um, breadth of knowledge um, to to sustain this across all these different different areas that, that you, you, you speak with folks. And I'm really honored and, and delighted to have had the chance to chat with you. Yeah, I mean, next time, maybe we'll talk about the 20th century Jim Crow riots, um, legal realism, the relationship between sort of legal realism in the African-American and white communities and sort of what each taught the other. I mean, there's a million things to talk about. I had a great time. Well, Joe books the shows. As far as I'm concerned, you can just book every future episode with Al, Joe. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Al. Thank you so Enjoy much. Enjoy it. Go, go dogs. Go dogs. <laughs> All right, there we go. All right, I'm going to hit stop.